Welcome to the Spectrum of Health Podcast. I'm Dr. Christine Schaffner, and today I'm speaking with my good friend, Dr. Heather Paulson. Dr. Heather Paulson is a board-certified naturopathic oncologist. She's an expert in combining natural therapies, nutrition, exercise, and emotional healing. She has over 10 years of clinical experience and has helped thousands of people with cancer. I really hope you enjoy our conversation. We talk about her cancer-proof strategy. I learned a lot from Heather, and I hope you do too. Welcome, Heather. It's an honor to have you on the podcast today. I'm so grateful to be here and uh, speaking with you and everyone listening today. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And Dr. Heather Paulson and I met at a conference a few years ago, and we really hit it off. Just obviously, we're both naturopathic physicians, and just we have a lot of um, similar, um, you know, goals and missions for our careers. And so, um, we really connected over those things. And I'm just so excited to share more about, you know, what you're doing. And I think the impo- the work that you're doing is so important. I I see a lot of chronic illness in my practice, and while while I don't see or treat cancer, um, you know, it comes up all the time, whether a patient has a family member who has cancer or even our patients who develop cancer, unfortunately. And we're always just looking for the best strategies and resources. So people have, you know, a really informed choice because I think this, this topic can be so scary for so many people. And so I'm so excited to, you know, really dive into kind of what you're doing and the knowledge that you're sharing with people. But before we jump in, Heather, you know, I'd love to hear just, you know, really how did you um, begin on this journey to really um, specialize in cancer therapy? Um, what led you to this path? That's, uh, thank you for allowing me to share a bit of my story because I was never somebody who dreamed of going to medical school or becoming a doctor as a child. As a child growing up, I always wanted to be a marine biologist. And, and I got to do that and I got to live my childhood dream and study whales and work for the national park service and study marine biology. But the interesting thing that happens to all of us when we're supposed to be directed to another path to be of greatest, greater service to people is that uh, while I was in undergrad studying marine biology at UC Santa Barbara, my dad was diagnosed with colon cancer. It was my first year of school. I was 18 years old. And I remember him being diagnosed right when I moved away to college. And that really impacted a lot of my choices. As a marine biologist, you might not know this, but we are required to take the same first two years of classes as pre-med students. So the same classes that pre-med takes, uh, you also take in order to study fish and whales. And that was a great blessing to me because I got familiar with the medical library and I ended up spending equal amounts of time researching about fishes as well as heading over, kind of sneaking over to the medical library and reading about colon cancer. One of the things that came up for our family while my dad was going through his journey was the question of what else can we be doing? He was going through chemo and surgery, and there just seemed like something was missing. You know, people were seeing my dad, his doctor saw him as what I felt like they saw him as a colon tumor instead of a whole person. And 
they were really treating the tumor. And when we ask questions like, are there foods we should be, we should have him eat because it's in the colon. It seems like diet would affect this. They would say, no, no diet doesn't matter. Just eat whatever you want. Um, or when we would ask if there's other natural therapies that he could take in the meantime, when he had uh, uh, periods of remission, they would say, no, no, that doesn't really work. And that was, uh, that was my experience with, with being in that, that family part of going through cancer. But it was, it was a couple days before my dad died that I came across this term naturopathic medicine and naturopathic doctors. And I was just shocked that there, there was these physicians that were actually trained in all of these things we were looking for. And also in Western medical sciences and in Western drugs and all the medications. Because when you, if you, I know you listening, statistically speaking, you've had a friend, family, loved one, or have been personally affected by cancer. And when you get on the internet and you start researching things, it's really hard to tell what is hype and what is like real legitimate science that could block cancer growth using natural medicine. And the fact that there were these doctors that were trained in both scopes of practice really appealed to me. And uh, that's when I decided I was going to become a naturopathic doctor. And uh, I, it was when my father was nonverbal at that point. He was actively dying. And so we never got to discuss it. Um, but I know, but I named my clinic after him, the Paulson Center, as my number one angel investor. I know that he would be so pleased to have his life have meaning in healing other people. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you for sharing such a personal and touching story. And I know that your father is probably so happy to see what you've created and all the people um, that you've helped. And so, um, you know, it's just amazing how um, even in some of the most devastating parts of our life, we're on our path and we're being led to something greater. Um, and so, you know, really, I mean, you've had this firsthand experience, you know, obviously losing, you know, your father uh, to cancer. So that obviously um, allows you to empathize and have such an open heart for people who are going through this. And so what you, um, so and you became a naturopathic doctor. And so tell me, you know, just, um, you know, you've created this wonderful book um, called Cancer Proof, um, Seven Natural Ways to Live Cancer Free. And so can you just share maybe what are you seeing um, from your perspective or maybe some of the um, most pressing um, needs or information that people who are, you know, beginning this journey through cancer that they need to um, understand? Absolutely. Well, Cancer Proof really came out of my myself, my experience with patients in my clinic and the most frequently asked questions that I would get in my clinic as well as some of the information that my family and I were looking for when my dad was going through his cancer experience. And then um, later while I was in medical school, my husband was diagnosed with lymphoma. So mm -hmm. I had even new questions at that time. So it's really a easy way to answer some questions. It's not 
uh, it's not complicated. You know, one of the things that I've learned about cancer, I've been doing strictly cancer care for over a decade. I've been part of integrative cancer centers and hospitals and uh, radiation oncology units. And I see both sides of cancer treatment. I see the benefits of conventional medicine, of chemo, radiation, surgery, and I see the huge benefits of natural medicine. I see where these two things can work together and then where they should work separately and can work very powerfully separately. Um, so cancer proof is the answer to a lot of people's questions that I get in a very simplified way. You know, I've had some of my oncology colleagues read through it. They're like, this isn't very complicated. And I said, exactly. It's not, it's not complicated. When we boil down all of the cancer research out there, there's really only a few things that have been shown over and over and over again in, in large populations to positively affect our risk of cancer or reducing risk of cancer coming back. Um, so these are the things that I cover in, in Cancer Proof, and they include some lab work, um, some exercise information. I, I go through the pros and cons of all the different diets. Uh, we talk about self-care because I haven't seen that addressed in other cancer books. And in my practice, I see it as a huge piece of the puzzle um, in terms of reducing cancer risk and in terms of reducing risk of recurrence. Um, we talk, talk about the environment and the toxins in our environment and how they play in as well as the power of your mind, the power of mindset, meditation, also in terms of going deeper with the science and soul of healing, which is something also not often talked about. But I know that most people who have a cancer experience, they do have some amount of post-traumatic growth that happens from that experience. And that growth can often be leading them to a higher connection to their higher self or to God or to their soul um, and help lead to deeper meaning in their life. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, th these are such important topics and maybe we can, you know, um, spend a little bit time like of going through a few of those um, and just maybe giving um, a, a few people some pearls. I mean, one of the things that stands out right away, Heather, is the mindset. You know, I, again, don't uh, treat cancer, but I've been uh, part of, um, you know, patients team who, um, especially, you know, one patient in particular who's doing really well, all things considered. And I just see the struggle that people go through in their, their mind, the challenge when they're given such a heavy diagnosis that has such weight and such uncertainty um, and to really feel empowered, you know, through um, treatment and to really, you know, hold hope and optimism and, you know, all of the complex emotions that come up. And so what are some of the things that you like to or resources that you like to share with people, um, you know, going through this? Yeah. So the thing about mindset, it's really it's really interesting when it comes to the cancer research, because what they find is that if you have an overly optimistic mindset, like if you're faking optimism, that is actually a negative prognostic marker for cancer risk. Um, so what that means is that if you are faking it until you make it with a positive mindset, it could increase 
your risk of cancer coming back if you've already had cancer in the past. On the same hand, if you're overly pessimistic about your experience with cancer, then that also increases the risk of recurrence. So what we are all trying to find, whether you have had cancer or not, is we're all trying to find this middle ground, which Buddhism calls equanimity, which is this middle space of non-reaction or uh, just kind of being comfortable with being where you are. You're not trying to force uh, happiness and you're not trying to stay in the wallows of self-pity or pessimism, but it's just someplace in, in the middle between those two. And that seems in the cancer research anyways to be what sets people up for the most success in their health. Mm -hmm. uh, it's also important to not try to force a growth mindset on yourself. There is an opportunity for post-traumatic growth when you or a loved one has been diagnosed with cancer. But when you force growth on yourself or somebody else, to, you say, hey, you know, what are the lessons? What are the gifts of cancer? You know, that can really set you up for ill health as well, unless you're ready to go there on your own. I know some people really have a pushback on this concept that cancer is a gift and cancer can be full of so many life lessons. And then other patients of mine really, really embrace that and dive head in. For me personally, cancer has been a great gift in my life. I mean, it has changed my career tra trajectory and I love what I do and I love the people that I help. It helps me when I'm with people with cancer, it helps me stay in the awareness of the preciousness of life. You know, there's so many people going through the hospice experience and going through death, as well as even if you are going to come out the other side of cancer healthier and more vibrant during a lot of the treatment process, it really breaks our body down to the brink, I think. And I do see people come out of cancer healthier than they went in. That's one of the things I uh, put in my paperwork with my patients is that I hope to help them become healthier after cancer than they ever were prior to cancer. But the mindset piece does make a huge, huge difference. Mm -hmm. I think those are so many valuable, you know, points. And of course, you know, having the support and the guide guidance, you know, so if someone's going through cancer, you know, really trying to find that team of support and resources and really, you know, acknowledging that this is such a part of your healing, just like finding the right treatment. Mm -hmm. So kind of taking like a little bit of a, you know, a turn here, but, you know, a lot of people, I'm sure the one of the number one questions you get all the time is about diet strategies in cancer, right? And so I know um, in our community and, you know, just in um, chronic illness and also cancer therapy and just naturopathic medicine and just all the, you know, the research um, right now, there's a very... Um, you know, strong opinion around the ketogenic diet. And so just kind of maybe just a few pearls around your philosophy around diet and, you know, cancer and, you know, um, how you guide people. Absolutely. So I've been practicing as a naturopathic oncology oncologist for over a decade, but my interest in cancer care started 20, over 20 years ago at this point. And what I have seen in 
that amount of time is a lot of different diets come in and out of vogue, if you will. So right now, the hot thing is the ketogenic diet. Uh, five years ago, everyone was doing juicing, you know, uh, eight years ago, the vegan diet was the thing. So I know that you and I both have this experience, Christine, where there's just times and places where certain diets bubble up as the thing to cure disease. And what I think is most important about diet is, yes, we are always learning more about our cell biology. We are always learning more about the mitochondria and how things replicate, how cells divide, and what genetic markers drive cell growth in cancer care. But the important thing is to recognize that no two tumors are alike. No two people are alike. And what works for one person, so one person can go into remission of cancer with a ketogenic diet, but that doesn't work for somebody else. And so then they try, they try a vegan diet and they end up going into remission. So I think it's really important to recognize the subtle differences in these different types of, of diets and recognize that not all of us are going to improve from the same food choices. So that's, that's the really important piece. And that's, what's so great about naturopathic medicine is that we treat the individual and we see you as a unique being with unique circumstances. Even if you have the same cancer cell type as the person who came in 45 minutes ahead of you, I don't see your tumors the same. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that that is so important to not lose sight of that. And then, I mean, I know it's a very complex question, but I'm sure people are thinking, you know, how do we know, you know, which is the right, you know, diet for us? I mean, do you have any like lab markers or just certain cancers that you think do certain, you know, because juicing versus ketogenic are like on the, on the, you know, on the opposite ends of the spectrum. So it's just, you know, um, you know, it's something that I'm actually struggling with trying to <laughs> figure out how to guide, guide people as well. But I, I do know like the more that, you know, we have patients check in with their bodies and their intuition, there, there are, you should feel better, you know, once you transition and there's always transition, obviously, you know, in a dietary change, but you know, that shouldn't um, give you, you know, um, you know, improvement in a lot of symptoms and that just general feeling of well-being when you're on the right diet. Yes. So there are a couple of things that I look at to say, okay, this would be a great diet for you, or this wouldn't be a good fit for you. And some of them are lab markers. And if you have insulin resistance, if you have high blood glucose and high insulin-like growth factor, those might be good markers for implementing a ketogenic diet. If your blood sugar is fine and we're looking at more inflammatory markers or we're looking at things that um, stimulate angiogenesis, which is the blood vessel formation of tumor cells and one of the ways that cancer can outsmart our body, if that's the case, then we would be leaning more towards a vegan or a vegetarian diet. And then there's the research on huge populations. So ketogenic diet has been studied in very specific populations and seems to be most effective for brain tumors. And the way that our brain cells work are 
completely different than the way that our breast cells work or our colon cells, liver cells. So it's important to understand some of the biochemistry behind why certain diets are working in particular places. Unfortunately, there's not really good data to say, okay, a vegan diet works good for colon cancer, a ketogenic diet works good for brain cancer, a pescatarian diet works good for prostate. We don't have that data right now, but I try to sort through all of the different nutrition information that comes across my desk to say, okay, this goes into the prostate cancer category. This goes into breast cancer category. This goes into ketogenic. So what I like to do is I like to focus on the research of which foods block certain tumor growth. And no matter what diet you choose to be on, make sure that you include these foods that have been studied against your tumor type, against your type of cancer cells. And then the framework of the diet can be shifted from ketogenic to vegan. You can go between those extremes as long as you are implementing certain types of food. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I think that's a really great uh, response to a complex question. And I think, you know, you probably also have, you know, it's the art of medicine to just, you know, when you're in front of a patient and just taking all the information in, you know, figuring out what, where's the starting point. And then, you know, I do find that, you know, um, diet obviously can be a foundational part of any treatment plan and therapy. And, but some people get locked into, oh, I have to eat this way forever. And that's, you know, not always true. There can be, you know, um, you know, really intensive dietary therapy for a period of time. And then that can be, you know, um, that can change and people's bodies and needs can change. So I think, um, I do see people struggle when they think, Oh my God, I have to eat this way forever, (laughs) you know? And so, you know, that's always a little bit of hard, um, yeah, and one one more piece on the choosing a diet, which is something that we're trained in as naturopaths, is traditional ways of using food. And I think it's important to recognize that that also goes into the equation of choosing the right diet for your body. So I often lean on traditional Chinese medicine and Ayurvedic medicine and their viewpoints on food and say, okay, if the spleen is congested according to Chinese medicine, and that's what your body looks like, and that's what your pulse shows us, then what kind of diet would I put you on? I have patients that come in and they're so committed to a particular diet because they have read that for sure raw food and juicing is going to cure their CLL, their lymphoma. And then, but they have an enlarged spleen, they have splenomegaly. And In Chinese medicine, raw foods cannot be digested when you have an enlarged spleen and you need to eat a lot of warm foods and you need to eat more um, soft foods and, and maybe a little bit more meat and specifically eggs. So it's also uh, taking into account these very wise traditional healing systems that I think knew a little bit more about the body in some ways than what we know today. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's a great point. And that's another layer, um, you know, to individualized treatment. Um, so I, I think that's a really, um, it's great that you have that full perspective and can really individualize treatment with that um, in mind. Um, so Heather, you know, something that, you know, I think translates into so many, you know, um, 
illnesses these days and kind of what we're seeing, you know, I feel really strongly with, um, in my world, the rise in neurological illness and just the rise in chronic illness is intimately um, connected to our environment and kind of the things that we are, you know, exposed to. And so I know that you mentioned that. And of course, with cancer, you know, looking at kind of what are some triggers or what are some environmental exposures that can uh, trigger cancer. So do you, um, you know, how do you approach kind of looking at someone's, you know, environmental exposure or kind of guiding them through how to clean up their life? What do you feel most strongly about is, um, you know, creating this risk profile for cancer for people? Sure. Well, I think as you probably talk about with your patients and on this podcast, it can be super overwhelming to think about how many toxins were exposed to on a daily basis. Uh, the latest estimates are that there are over 80,000 uh, products that have been unstudied and untested, that chemical products that are used around us on a daily basis. And it's easy to get stuck in fear and maybe be like, okay, I'm just going to wear a mask and stay in my house and uh, be really concerned about my exposure to these things. But I look at it as you know, we're just trying to reduce our risk of exposure as much as we can. And I find that the easiest way to do this is what we have control of first and foremost is our home environment. And then maybe we can start shifting our work environment. And then we can start shifting our collective environment through legislation and activism. But the most important thing that you can do is as you change your home environment, you're going to start purchasing different products. And we know that consumerism is a form of, uh, a, is a form of creating positive change in the United States. Retailers respond very well to our consumerism-based changes. And if you go room by room, that is what I find to be easiest. We recommend that you start in the bedroom because that is where you spend the most hours of your day, most likely in your home, is in your bedroom. And that might not seem like that's true. You're like, I'm not in my bedroom that much. I'm like in the kitchen cooking or watching TV. But actually, if you are sleeping eight to you know the recommended seven to nine hours a night, then that probably is the room that you're sitting in the most during that time. So that is probably the most important place to get started. Another way to make getting rid of toxic things in your home easy to do is that I just recommend to my patients that they replace whatever they run out of. So if they run out of mascara, they replace that with a healthy version of the mascara that they used to be using. When they run out of deodorant, they replace that. When they run out of dishwasher soap, they replace that. And that way you don't have to check out the whole cabinet at once. Just over time, um, before you know it, there'll be no more plastic in your cupboards, only glass containers, and there you'll, you'll just naturally progress into a healthier and healthier lifestyle. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's a great way to break that down, Heather, because it's so overwhelming. You know, when we think about, you know, the all the um, chemicals we're exposed to on a regular basis and how to 
um, you know, implement lifestyle, you know, choices to avoid exposure, you can kind of get paralyzed. And, you know, I, I do always like to say, you know, we, I think it's so important, like you said, to be, you know, mindful of these to make um, the best decisions possible and to, you know, of course, translate into that, um, how we can create action and, you know, a better future for, you know, the planet. But, you know, there's, we're never going to be able to escape all of it, you know, and so that is something that, you know, we have to set a realistic expectation that we're not, you know, we're living in an imperfect world in a lot of ways and that, you know, you have to do the best you can and be okay with that because uh -huh. I think that can, um, that can affect the mindset, right? If you just kind of look at everything that's um, wrong and, you know, look at the world kind of through this lens of fear. Absolutely. And that's where, detoxification comes in or cleansing or deparation, whatever terminology you want to use, that we can control what's in our home environment to a certain extent. And you're right. I mean, we have these persistent chemicals that are forever in our rainwater system at this time. If you go to the North or South Pole and take samples of the ice there, there's, uh, there's a fire retardants in the ice and different um, atrazine is in all water sources throughout the entire planet. So there are things that we cannot escape. That atrazine is part of what switched me from marine biology to naturopathic medicine because I was reading things that were affecting the stream systems and the coho salmon. And when we think about that, like, oh, well, I can control my home environment, but I can't escape from some of these other things. At least sometimes that floats into my mind. That's where, you know, sitting in a sauna and sweating and making sure you're eating clean foods, that you're taking um, supplements that can support detoxification uh, once a year or a couple times a year. Uh, those are all really important practices, knowing that we're all living in a toxic soup. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Yeah. And, you know, what kind of, um, you know, um, strategies do you, again, this is general and not a recommendation for individuals, but what kind of therapies and strategies um, for detoxification do you recommend, especially I'm sure the needs are different. Um, you know, if someone's going through conventional chemotherapy, right? Like what kind of mm -hmm. things they can implement versus, you know, more of a natural approach. But um, just so people, just to pique their curiosity, if they haven't heard about, you know, these, um, you know, therapies, just what are some tools in your toolkit that you recommend for detoxification? I'm really impressed with the research studies around infrared saunas and the power of the infrared sauna for, um, for removing mostly chemicals and solvents out of our tissue into the skin and sweat it out of our body. But also heavy metals can be uh can be removed through these sweat droplets. There was actually a research study done on infrared sauna with firefighters that were experiencing 9-11 syndrome. So they were the firefighters and rescue workers that were at ground zero during 9-11 in New York. And they got sick from that experience because they were inhaling all of the toxins that were in these crushed buildings and buildings on fire. And what they found when they studied the sweat droplets of these rescue workers was that there were heavy metals that were sweated out. There were fire retardants that was contained in the sweat droplets. There were pesticides, um, all kinds of different solvents that were all exposed to um, 
So I think that that can be a powerful place to start as long as your doctor clears you for sauna because there are some contraindications to using high temperatures, for example, if you have heart conditions um, or if you have peripheral neuropathy, it might not be a great fit. So, So it's definitely something to not just jump into on your own and to be guided into it, but that's one of my... Um, favorite places to start. I also like to look at phase two detoxification in the liver. And I think that this is underappreciated and under discussed when people go through detoxification programs. If you are in a health food store and pick up a detoxification program in a box from one of their shelves, it generally includes some type of fiber or some type of laxative to help move the bowels, and then a bunch of things that stir up toxins in your body um, through phase one detoxification in the liver. But the interesting thing is I like to think of these practices as a stream system, again, going back to my marine biology, but if you step into a stream, you can you can see a completely clear stream. But if it is a silt-based stream that has very fine particles, as soon as you step into it, there's all these particles that get kicked up. And then the water has to rush by at a certain rate or a certain number of times for that dust to settle or for it to become a clear stream again. And what happens when we do just phase one detoxification and laxatives is we're just kicking up a bunch of silt from the bottom, but we're missing that piece, which is phase two detoxification of moving everything out of the system to really clear the stream. And I think that's why some people who have done detoxes in the past, they feel sick or they um, have a lot of side effects from it because they're missing that step that helps clear things out. So really focusing on on phase two, which includes mostly amino acids um, to help with phase two detoxifications. It includes sulfurated compounds like broccolis and Brussels sprouts, the cruciferous vegetables. And, um, and then it includes things like sauna and lymphatic massage and, and things of that nature as well. Mm-hmm. So much great information, Heather. No, I think that's really, you know, so many great pearls there. And, um, you know, I think, um, you know, all of us, whether we have a diagnosis or not have to think, you know, how do we implement and incorporate more of these strategies into our lives, you know, to keep us, you know, healthy and on the path of prevention. So I think those are some really, you know, great pearls. One of the things, um, you know, I don't know, you know, um, what your stance is. Um, I have some patients who kind of, you know, there's some trends in testing right now that you are probably way more knowledgeable than I am, but you know, people who want to know their, um, how to prevent cancer or if they have maybe not a cancer diagnosis, but kind of in this gray zone, you know, of, you know, maybe, um, you know, how we can, the, the basis of what I'm saying is, is there, do you believe in a way to detect cancer earlier so people can, um, be more proactive around strategies and treatments? And if so, um, you know, the testing around that. But I know that's a, you know, a, a big question. I'm just curious from your perspective right now what you're seeing. 
Yeah, I think that the most important test that you can do to be proactive around your risk of cancer is nothing fancy. Mm-hmm. It actually should be done annually uh, by, as just part of your general physical screening exam. And that is looking at your fasting glucose levels and your hemoglobin A1C. We know that glucose, insulin, and your glucose history over a three-month period of time, which is the hemoglobin A1C, when those are elevated or when those are off balance, that that dramatically increases your risk of cancer in five years or 10 years, Uh, so depending on your age group. But that is That is something that your doctor should already be doing on a least annual basis, and you can control with diet and exercise or the right supplements or even the right medication. I mean, there's a lot of evidence on metformin reducing the risk of cancer for people who have dysregulated blood sugar. So that um, is probably not as fancy of a test as looking at circulating tumor cells or looking at... DNA fragmentation, but I think that that is something that's readily accessible and really important for us all to be paying attention to mm-hmm. in terms of cancer risk. And the other thing is vitamin D. We know that when people have appropriate levels of vitamin D in their blood, that that dramatically reduces not only the risk of cancer, but also the risk of recurrence of cancer, as well as if you have adequate vitamin D and you happen to be the one in three Americans that will be diagnosed with cancer in their lifetime, um, when your vitamin D levels are adequate at the time of diagnosis, you're more likely to have a positive response to surgery, chemotherapy, and radiation. So there's a lot of um, importance in vitamin D levels. And then if we wanted to take it a next step down, I do like to look at people's genetics and look at certain parts of the genome that have been linked to cancer risk, particularly in women. I like to look at how their body and their genetics naturally process estrogens. And I also look like to look um, for everybody looking at how you methylate and sulfurate um, products in your body because that gives us information on how likely are environmental toxicants to impact your DNA health and your cell health and are you metabolizing these things well or not. So uh, those are things that are important to look at in terms of reducing cancer risk. Mm-hmm. Those are excellent recommendations and accessible, you know, because there's this trend and, you know, all these fancy tests that are quite expensive. And so I, I think that's, um, you know, really great information. And we should, you know, that's, again, we can look at these things one to two times a year if you're in good health, for sure, and, you know, um, be in a preventative track. And um, I know there's a book called Cancer as a Metabolic Disease, and, you know, really blood sugar regulation is um, going to only have you know, is only going to prevent more illness and disease down the road. I mean, I know that even with neurological disease and dementia, there's a whole, you know, um, metabolic piece there as well. So, um, mm-hmm. so no, that's great. Um, 
info, Heather. Well, no, I feel like I could pick your brain all day. I'm, I'm learning so much from you and it's just a, you know, joy to, you know, sit here and chat. And so I guess before we, you know, wrap up, Heather, is there any, you know, other things on your mind that we haven't covered when you're thinking about kind of where you sit and kind of, you know, really this epidemic of cancer that we're all um, going to be confronted with either with our own health or, you know, with a family or friend, you know, any other kind of, um, you know, pearls that we haven't touched on that you want to Share. Absolutely. I would like to talk about what I consider would be the number one cancer drug if we could encapsulate it and you could swallow it as a pill. And that is exercise. Uh, the data on exercise for reducing risk of cancer and reducing risk of cancer coming back if you've already been diagnosed with cancer is phenomenal um, and very, very clear that it is a huge piece in reducing risk of cancer as well as many, many other diseases. And I am so sad that it can't be encapsulated. <laughs> so sad that I can't take exercise as a supplement, but I, we actually have to make time in our schedule to physically move our bodies. And that's getting harder and harder with the with our work environments and um, with distractions like Netflix and <laughs> Hulu. Um, mm -hmm. But exercise is so critical. And the cancer research shows that uh, there's a, a certain threshold of exercise that is most helpful for reducing risk of cancer and reducing risk of recurrence, and that's 170 minutes a week. The cool thing is, is that knowing that number, you can you can do whatever you want with that number of minutes. They have found that breaking it up to about 30 minutes a day is effective as well as being a weekend warrior and doing uh, a 90 to 90 minute sessions of exercise or one 170 minute session of exercise has been shown to be equally effective for reducing cancer risk. And so that I feel that there's a lot of freedom in that. I used to think that it had to be so many minutes every single day. Um, but for my schedule, it works a lot better to think of it as, okay, three days a week, I'm going to exercise for 60 to 75 minutes, and then I'm going to hit my 170 minutes. That's great. And I think that, again, that's um, free, right? You know, all of us, right. you know, can have, you know, the, you know, I know mobility for some people, but there's always a way to, you know, um, you know, move and movement, you know, once you get that into your routine can be such a powerful um, stress relief and so great for the mind and the soul and just for the body. So no, I think that's a really great point. If you can't move, I would highly recommend there is some information on rocking chairs as being something that can count as movement. So if you have a hard time getting up and getting out, um, get a rocking chair if that's available for you, if that's something that you feel like you can do, because rocking back and forth and pushing with your toes still pumps the lymphatic system and is considered movement. And then the other thing that's uh, really cool is the adaptive resistance exercise or ARX machines. If you can find one in your area, they are used to help build your strength. It's if you look, if you Google it, it'll mostly look like it's for biohackers and like guys who are getting super buff. But in reality, it's very good for 
rehab and people who haven't been moving very much. Um, the person that I work with here in Arizona, he's used it to help people with cerebral palsy gain strength and be able to move better and walk better. Um, and it's adaptive resistance exercise because it's a computer system that is only pushing against you the same amount that you're pushing. So it only matches your own strength as opposed to lifting one pounds, five pounds, 10 pound darbell, um, which is not is not reactive to you. It is just that weight all of the time. So as we get fatigued after we do a couple of bicep curls, uh, the weight can actually be potentially damaging to our tendons and our joints. But the ARX machine will show will see that you're actually getting weaker, and it will reduce the amount of pushing or resistance that it gives you. So it's always being reciprocal to your level of strength and your level of movement. No, that's a great point. You know, there's really, um, you know, a path for everyone. So, um, no, that, that's a wonderful, you know, recommendation. Well, Heather, you've given us again, so much information and I hope, um, you know, I, and I know that you've inspired a lot of people just to learn more about all that you've shared. And so can you just tell our listeners, you know, really where they can find out more about what you offer and your book and all the great things that you're up to right now? Absolutely. The best place to connect with me is my website, which is drheatherpaulson.com. That's D-R, Heather, and then Paulson is spelled P-A-U-L-S-O-N.com. And on drheatherpaulson.com, you can download my free book, The Great Life, which is five steps to a cancer prevention lifestyle. And a lot of things that we talked about today are part of the great life. And I just expanded the great life in cancer proof. If you do um, get my my cancer proof book on Amazon, there's some links within that book to join our free membership community where we have some exercise plans, some meditation audios, some recipes for a cancer-proof diet, uh, some different things like that available to you so that you feel well-supported and well-informed. Thank you so much, Heather. And I, you know, so appreciate and enjoy this conversation today. And it's just so fun getting to know you more. Thank you for having me. And I am just so grateful to be able to share these practical tips with you listening today. And I wish you great health and a cancer-proof life. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Spectrum of Health podcast. Dr. Heather Paulson is co-hosting the Connecting Health Summit, Breaking the Link Between Cancer and Autoimmune Disease, which airs May 16th through 18th. She invited me to be a speaker and I really enjoyed uh, contributing to the summit and I hope you learn a lot. She has a lot of great speakers and you can learn more um, from the link provided in the show notes. Thank you.